Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. So what do you do when God um, completely and totally interrupts your plan? I mean, you have a plan that you expect is going to uh, work out. You have desires. And God completely and totally flips it upside down. I don't know about you, but when I have that thing that comes, far too often, sad to say, what comes out of my heart and what comes out of my mouth are, are complaints or, or criticisms or doubts or fears. Those are the things I'm tempted to do when, when God turns up my apple cart and turns it upside down. What's amazing this morning is that we're going to be looking at a 13 or 14-year-old girl. When God comes into her life, and turns her life upside down. What comes out of her life is praise. What comes out of her life is worship. What comes out of her life is faith. And I'm 30 plus years older than that young lady, right? But I can learn from her this morning. I pray that you would learn with me. In Luke chapter 1, we read... In verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. I'll stop there for a moment. Well, the background, which you're very familiar with, is the fact that Elizabeth, who was this older woman who had been barren, who had longed for a child and and couldn't have one, And in that day, if you couldn't have a child, oftentimes people would look at you as though you were cursed by God, that there was something wrong with you. And so her her husband was a faithful man. He was a priest. Um, Elizabeth was a faithful wife, but they didn't have a child, and they longed for one. And then all of a sudden, one day, her husband went into the temple, and as he's in the temple, what happens? This angel comes to him and tells him that he is going to have a son. He hardly even believes it. And to make sure that he knows, he shuts his mouth for months. And then they go home and tell Elizabeth that you're going to have a child in your old age. And it's just amazing. Can you imagine after all these years wanting and longing for something? And then God finally brings it about. Several weeks ago, uh, my family went to see Noah in, um, in Lancaster. And, and to think about how, how long it was that after he received the promise that the uh, flood is going to come, he had to wait almost 100 years. Or how about Abraham? You know, he hears the promise from God and he has to wait 25 years to see the birth of his son. Well, there's been 400 years of silence, 400 years where God has not said anything to the nation. And now all of a sudden, out of the darkness comes light. And what is coming out is this. There is going to be a son born to this older woman, and this son is going to be the herald of the next one to come, the real Messiah, the Savior of your world. Keep reading with me here. It says this, and in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord has come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So I asked you, how do you respond when struggles come into your life? What comes out of you? What we see here with Elizabeth is that as Elizabeth is there, what was coming out of her heart and what was coming out of her life was once again praise. She, even the baby in her womb, is praising God. It's interesting, in our day today, we look at the fetus and we say that the fetus has no feelings and has no knowledge, but that seems to go counter to what was happening right now, that this baby inside, John the Baptist, is leaping for joy as he encounters the fact that Mary, the mother of his Savior, and the Savior has come into this room. Both of these women are lowly. Both of these women are, are not of great uh, money. They don't have great fame. Um, and outside of the babies that they would bear, probably would, nobody would ever remember their name. But what God did was this. They trusted in the promises of God, and they trusted God. And what God was going to do was something amazing through their lives. They were both visited by an angel, and they were both chosen to bear the promise of God. And they were both the first to know that the Savior had come. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament ends with Malachi and then there's been 400 years of complete and total silence from God. There was no new revelation that came until John the Baptist is brought into this world and then Jesus Christ. These two sons, John the Baptist is going to be the greatest and the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is going to be the herald of the New Testament. He's going to be the savior of this world. And as the baby leaps for joy and as Elizabeth praises God, what do we learn? We learn it is all about God. It's not about the circumstances. Now, I want you to consider Mary. Now, most of us know Mary and know that she uh, bore uh, Jesus Christ, but I want you to consider the life that she had to endure. See, in our culture, if a, if a young woman is pregnant without being married, you know, some would say that that is probably a concern, but it's not the same as it was in that culture. In that culture, a young woman who is pregnant without being married could actually be stoned. Joseph, her husband, who she was espoused to, and espousal at that time was the sense of, of a marriage without sex, a marriage without living together. They were married. So Joseph would end up having to divorce her and put her aside if he chose to. He could have done that as well, but he chose not to do that. So think about Mary. Mary would have to go through the cruel insinuations that she would have to deal with all the rest of her life. She would have to go through the fact that people would scandalize her character. She would have to go through the fact that people would judge her for the rest of her life. Her character would be diminished. This honor that God would give her would become such a great dishonor. And think about the suspicion of her spouse. That as her spouse looked at her and said, I don't know if I can even trust you. And throughout Jesus' life, Jesus would actually have to endure people coming to him and saying, well, at least we know who our father is. So there's a sense that throughout Jesus' life and throughout Mary's life, they would have to deal with the shame and the guilt that was not theirs to bear. And how would you respond? And how would I respond? Because I, I, I know, sad to say, far too often we may respond in unbelief. Far too often, we may respond in anger. Far too often, we may respond in fear or discontentment or dissatisfaction. 
I don't know how you respond when the pressure comes into your life, when God turns your life upside down, when things go radically different. But what came out of Mary's life and what came out of Elizabeth's life was praise. Praise. Look with me here at this thing, what we call the Magnificat. It is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It says in verse 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now and all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of his heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So this morning, I'd like to think about how Mary responded because see I respond and you were tempted to respond in the fear and the unbelief and the anger and the frustration but what Mary responded was with worship she sang God she worshiped God and she praised God now I want you to consider three things three simple points this morning first that true worship is our responsibility true worship is our responsibility second I want you to consider that true worship is about God, not about me. And then third, I want you to consider that true worship results in gratitude, love, and service. So true worship is our responsibility. What do we learn from this passage right here? It says, Mary, in verse 46, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So the first thing that I notice here is this, that true worship is our responsibility in the fact that Mary made worship personal. It's about her. See, we gather together in this room and we gather together as a corporate body and we, we listen to musicians sing and we come together to sing and participate. But the fact of the matter is it's you that is called to worship God. It's personal. That God is calling you to lift him up in your heart. And to make him bigger than the circumstances that you are enduring right now. In Psalm 103, it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and tender mercies. See, what God calls us to do this morning is to worship him, and it's our responsibility. We need to make it personal. But there's a second thing that I think I see here is not only is worship personal, but worship is passionate. Worship is passionate. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, in the Hebrew writings, what they would do is they would talk about the soul and the spirit, and that basically meant everything of you internally, the, all of you. See, we don't just worship God with our lips. What we're supposed to do is to worship him from all of who we are. And what Mary was saying is that from the depth of my soul, I worship you. I magnify you. Our worship must be passionate. 
You know, far too often, and I know, far too often we come into a church building and we, we sing songs and sometimes our hearts are not even close and we're singing words and we're mouthing these words, but we're really not magnifying him. That's not what was happening in Mary's life. She wasn't magnifying the circumstances. She wasn't magnifying the insinuations. She wasn't magnifying the judgments that she was going to have to endure. What she was magnifying was God in the midst of all of this because he saw, she saw him as greater to you. Well, true worship is our responsibility in the fact that we're, it should be personal. True worship is our responsibility in the fact that it should be passionate. But true worship is our responsibility in the fact that we should be pious in that worship. She talked about humility. Far too often when we come into worship, we make it all about ourselves, you know? I really didn't like that song, or I did like that song. I really didn't like that speaker, or I did like that speaker. And all of the tendency in church today, far too often, is about what it did for me. And what Mary is saying is this, that true worship is, is about piety. It's about being humble before him. It is about the fact that we are his servants and we're serving him. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he said, I didn't come here to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for you. So if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can become a baby in the womb, how is it that I can't be a servant to you? And how is it that you can't serve me? Amen. So true worship is our responsibility. And lastly, I want you to consider that true worship is our responsibility because it is practiced. It is practiced. It's personal, it's passionate, it's pious, but it's also practiced. The amazing thing about this passage in the 10 verses of this Magnificat Mary quoted from no less, or alluded to from no less than 11 books of the Old Testament. Probably a number of us in this room haven't even read 11 books in the Old Testament. Mary quoted from them or alluded to them. She alluded to Genesis and to Deuteronomy and to First and Second Samuel and to Job and to Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk and Micah, and Zephaniah. When she was offering this praise, she's quoting from or alluding to these passages from Scripture. And what does that tell me about Mary? What it tells me about Mary is that she's very practiced in her worship. See, when God comes and knocks on the door and turns my world upside down, I don't have time necessarily to go and flip through this book and figure out how I'm going to handle it. Mary had already practiced it before. It had become a habitual way of life, so what came out of her mouth was a byproduct of what she had done habitually in her life. So she knew the word. She loved the word, and she loved Christ, and she lived that word. And so I guess I ask you, I've got one finger out to you and three are back to me. I, I need to figure out in my life that, God, what pours out of my life when you turn my life upside down? What pours out of my heart and what comes out of my lips when you change my plans? I know the pastor's been talking uh, about sovereignty, right? And, and sovereignty is the fact that God's the boss, right? And, and he's got a plan and he's got a direction. And the question is, am I willing to submit to his sovereignty? Am I willing to submit to his plan? So what I find for Mary is that true worship is our responsibility. The second thing I find which is most important, is that true worship is about God. True worship is about God. 
she talks about magnifying God. Now, um, I think it's John Piper that talks about this idea of magnification. And when we're in school, you can look through a magnifying glass, and a magnifying glass does something. It makes something small big, right? But that's not what Mary is talking about when she's talking about her magnification. She's not talking about making something small big. She's making something big, big in my life. That God is immense, and he's greater than the insinuation she was going to have to bear. He's greater than the pain that she was going to have to endure. He's greater than the fact that maybe my husband will be suspicious of me. He's greater than all of those things because he is great. And she wants to magnify him. So what, is, what do we learn about God? Well, there's so many things in this passage, but I just want to pull out a handful of things that she says. The first, of all, first thing that I think I see is that God sees. God sees. Well, where do I pick that up? In verse 48, it says this. For he looked on the humble estate of his servant. He sees. I want you to consider the fact that God knows you. God knows you. God knows every hair in your head. God knows every thought that you've ever had. God knows everything that you've ever done. See, the thing that we put on in front of other people... God knows whether that is true or not. He knows the depth of all of you. And for some of us, we worry about the fact that, does anybody know me? I know for teenagers, oftentimes we worry about, does somebody know me? Does somebody love me? Does somebody accept me? And it's probably not just teenagers, it's us as adults, right? And then there's this fear that those who do know me can't possibly love me because if they really knew who I was, they would never love me. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that there is one being, one God in this universe that knows you completely, knows everything that you've ever done, knows everything that you've ever will do, and he loves you. He loves you. He sees you. So when the tears of insecurity come, and it's like I am all alone, that that person is not there to meet my need, guess what? There is one who can meet your need, and it is God. He sees you. He looked down on her and her humble estate. Well, the second thing I think I see about God is this, that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. What do we see here? It says this. For he's looked down, verse 48, on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now all generations will be blessed. For he who is, what? Mighty. Mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God is mighty and holy is his name. Verse 51, it says this, he has shown the strength with his arm. You know, like a guy at times will roll up their sleeve just to get to work and you can see the muscles in their arm. I, I don't have many. Um, um, God rolls up his sleeve and he's got a mighty arm. He's all powerful. And in his might and in his sovereignty, look with me what he does. He he has shown his strength, verse 51, has shown the strength with his arm, and he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. So what is God doing in his sovereignty? God is diminishing the proud, and he's exalting the humble and lowly. Who would have ever thought that this poor girl would become the mother 
of the Son of God. Who would ever have thought that this old woman who is barren would be the mother of the one that was going to usher the Lord Jesus Christ into this world? Nobody would have ever assumed that. These two very lowly women, what God did was to lift them up. And what God does in other people's lives is that those who exalt themselves and think that they're better than God, they're diminished. Those that put all of their trust in the things of this world, they're going to lose it all. And what God does in his sovereignty, in his might, is show himself to be holy. Now, I said to you that God sees you. God sees you even when you don't imagine it. He sees you. He sees everything that you've ever done, and he is a holy God, because holy is his name. Now, that can be somewhat fearful, to be honest with you, if you think of a God who's all-powerful, mighty, and all-knowing, present, and he is holy, that can be very frightening if it wasn't for the next thing that I believe I see here. He saves. He saves. It says that he pours his mercy upon us. In verse 50, his mercy is there for those who fear him. See, I believe that true worship must be gospel-centered. One of the cool things about listening to your, your songs this morning was how much Christ was magnified in those songs. Um, far too often the music of our day magnifies us rather than Christ. And Christ is the one that we are called to be here for, right? So, so when you think about it, what is the gospel? The gospel began with a story that God, the creator of this world, he's always existed. And he created this world, and what he did was he created this world not because he needed to, but because he wanted to share his love with you. And he wanted to share a relationship with you, the relationship that he had with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He wanted to share with all of us. And so he creates this beautiful world, and, and he puts two people in that world. He puts an Adam, and he puts an Eve in this world. And they were in a sort of probationary state. And in this probationary state, what they needed to do was to obey God. Well, God had given them such beauty that in this beauty, there was beauty between God and humanity. They, God walked with humanity. There was beauty between humanity and humanity. There was a union that was there. And there was even harmony between humanity and nature. The lion and the lamb could lay down together. I could walk up and pet a bear, and I wouldn't have to worry. And then all of a sudden, what happened is that before... We listened to God, and now we stopped listening to God. We stopped listening to his plan, and we were tempted to doubt his word. We were tempted to doubt his character, and we were tempted to doubt his authority in our lives. And what happened was that sin came into this world. Now, sin is an, is an interesting thing. Sin is not just what we do. Sin is about who I am internally. So when God looks at you, it's not just what you do. You're sitting here in church. It's the fact that in your own very heart, God sees what happens. Sin. Well, humanity rejected God, and God judged humanity. But even as humanity rejected God, and it brought shame, it brought fear, it brought guilt upon them, God was offering a promise to you right in the Garden of Eden. He says that through a woman's womb, will come the answer, the Savior of the world. 
Well, after the garden, what we see is all this chaos and all this confusion that comes from the fact that humanity is faithless and cannot fulfill God's plan, and God is faithful. And now the ultimate remedy comes in this person of Christ, that Jesus Christ was going to live every day from the womb to the grave and then eternally for you perfectly. He lived perfectly because I can't live a moment of my day perfectly. And then for every moment that I have lived imperfectly, that on the cross, Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for you and for me. It says in Isaiah, surely he bore our grief and, and carried our sorrow, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep go astray, and every one of us turn to his own way. But the Lord, the Father, has laid upon his Son the iniquity of us all. See, God is a God who sees, and God is a God who's sovereign, but God is a God who saves. And he offers you that mercy today. He offers you that opportunity today to trust him. Well, the next thing I believe I find from this passage about God is not only that he sees and he's sovereign, he saves, but he also satisfies. He satisfies. It says this in verse 53, that he fills the hungry with good things. He fills the hungry with good things. I don't know about you, but this time of the year, you were talking about the fact that a council this time of the year is probably one of the hardest points of, count, of the counseling uh, calendar. One, what happens is that people stop counseling from Thanksgiving to Christmas. you have any idea why? Well, they want to spend their money on Christmas presents. <laughs> they don't want to spend their money coming to me. They want to spend their money on Christmas presents. So, so my session numbers start to drop in December. Guess when they start to pick up again? In January, well, the bills, the credit card bills come in January, but then they also come, they start calling after Christmas. Why? Because now they've spent their time with maybe family members where they didn't get along very well, and they were hoping that the filling of Christmas would fill them, right? Maybe the presents, or maybe the food, or maybe the fellowship, and they walk away feeling so empty. And you look at the stores, and you look at the people, and they're crowding into these stores, and they lack joy, they lack peace, they lack hope, and they're looking for something to satisfy them in this world that will never satisfy them. Because there's only one that can ultimately satisfy, and the one that can ultimately satisfy is Christ. Amen. So we can go after these things, we can go after these things of this world, but those things of this world hopefully will grow strangely dim eventually. What God does for you and for me is that he wants to fill the poor with possession. He wants to fill the hungry ultimately. Now, he's not talking about physically as much. He's talking about spiritually. You know, there's some that would take the gospel and make it into this health, wealth, and prosperity stuff. But that's not primarily what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the material blessings of this world, yes, to a point. But the greatest thing he's talking about is the spiritual blessing that he wants to give you in Christ. He wants to fill you so that what comes out of your heart and your life is praise. He sees you, he's sovereign, he saves you, he satisfies you, he secures you, he secures you. 
The one thing about God is this. He is faithful. She ends this by talking about the fact that she talked about the, the promises that you gave Abraham and to the offspring forever. He is faithful to his covenant. What the Old Testament tells us is that we can't do it on our own, right? Old Testament story of Old Testament stories starts with the fact that God lays down a law and humanity says that they can fulfill it. And guess what? We can't. Right from Genesis all the way through Malachi, it tells us that we are going to be faithless. But what does it tell us is that God will remain faithful because he can't deny himself. And Jesus Christ was the ultimate faithful one. He was faithful in his thoughts, his words, his attitudes, his actions. He glorified God. So what do we learn from Mary? First, we learn from Mary that true worship is our responsibility. Second, we learn from Mary that true worship is about God. But the third thing and the final thing I want you to consider is that true worship is about gratitude and love and service. God does something amazing in people's hearts and in lives who center their lives on him. That God brings about fruitfulness in your life. He wants to change you. Can you take a man like Saul, one of my favorite, Saul, Paul, one of my favorite New Testament people, and you take a man who's on this road to Damascus and he's ready to punish Christians. He's ready to imprison Christians, and he's actually there when Christians are murdered. And this man, he takes him, and he transforms his heart, and he transforms his life. And this man now writes 13 or 14 books in the New Testament. Do you think that happened by just chance? No. That what God does in our lives when we, when we recognize our guilt and we recognize the grace that he's poured upon you is that we should be living our lives in gratitude today. And Paul in Romans chapter 1, he talked about the fact that one of the judgments of our day is the fact that we fail to glorify God and we fail to be grateful to God. For some reason, we take the God of mercy and we make him at our mercy. And there's something radically wrong with that. That what God wants to do in your life is to recognize the mercy that he's poured upon you and in the gratitude for what he's done and the love for what he's done, it should just pour out this aspect of praise. This little 13 or 14-year-old girl knew what this 48-year-old man doesn't. That God is to be central in our lives. That the Bible needs to be read and learned and saturated and that what comes out of that word is God. And that when we come to worship, it's about God. And that God is so sovereign that he can upset your apple cart. But guess what? He's got a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. A plan to give you hope and a future. What, what she tells me is this, that even though I am faithless, he will remain faithful because he can't deny himself. He tells me and she tells me that I can be satisfied in Christ. So I guess, I guess I asked the question this morning. Is that your passion this morning? When God turns your life upside down, how do you respond? 
When your plans get thwarted, how do you respond? When those who are close to you don't treat you in the way that you would want, how do you respond? I think one thing that also has gotten me this week as I've been studying this passage is as a leader of my own home, I, um, I need to do a much better job of ushering my kids in the word of God. Mary, in all likelihood, was illiterate. Yet she quoted from 11 books of the Bible. So what she did was she sat in a church like you and I, and she sat there and listened to God's word. And she took it in. And then she sat at her mom or dad's feet and she took it in. And she didn't just take it in mentally. She took it in internally in depth. So are you singing with Mary this morning? Are you worshiping God? Are you magnifying him or are you magnifying the things of this world? Turn your eyes upon who? Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let it be said of us that the Lord is our passion. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. Father.